You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12-34. I ask you guys a question this morning as we begin. How do you measure the value of an activity? We live in a day and an age when there is so much all around us begging us for our time. There's so many activities that we could be a part of. There's so much going on with kids' sports, with uh, church activities, with school, with different things in the, in the workplace, all begging us for time. And, and then you throw into that great causes, such as the Gideon Bible camps, such as uh, new or young life uh, youth ministries, such as uh, even politics and noble causes within that realm. So how do we measure the value of an activity? How do we measure the value of our time? Again, how how do you decide what you're going to give your time and your resources to? You know, so often what I find in my own life is that others are willing to do that for us. If we don't have a plan... If we don't know the end game, if I don't understand what life is all about and the purpose that, it, that I have in this, in this world and the passion that God has given me and the spiritual giftings that He's given me, then others are going to decide how I spend my time. Others are going to decide where my resources go. And so it's important for us to ask this question, and that's our title this morning, is Are We Living? In the light of the resurrection, are we, are you and I, living in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and not only that, the resurrection of believers? And that's what the theme is for our message today. Not just today, but the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There's one overriding theme, and that is the resurrection of the believers. You see, there were those in the church in Corinth, leaders in the church that were teaching there was no resurrection from the dead. And so Paul is addressing this false teaching about the resurrection of the dead. And, and it's good for us to go through this because even though we may not have somebody in our church that's teaching this, we have Christians that are denying this by the way that they live their lives. They've forgotten or lost sight of the fact that there is a resurrection of the dead. That our physical bodies will one day be risen or be raised by the power of God, from the grave, or whether, you were, uh, whether your, your loved ones have been cremated, God will gather their ashes. He's powerful enough to do that. I've been asked that before. You know, is it okay for Christians to be cremated? Well, you know, I, I believe in a big God, a God that can do anything. He's, he's powerful enough to find the ashes of a body that's been burned. What about all those Christians that were burned at the stake? You think God didn't know about them and he's not going to be able to raise them from the dead? I guarantee you he's powerful enough to do that. But listen, we serve a God who is going to raise our physical bodies and we are going to in the air be changed in an instant and receive an immortal body and go into eternity. In that mindset, we need to know we need to be living for that today. And so as we go into our passage this morning... We look at the first 11 verses. Uh, we already studied those two weeks ago. 
And, and, and the theme of those is the foundation of the resurrection. Paul's a very logical thinker. He lays down the foundation of the resurrection, saying that Jesus Christ himself is the foundation of the resurrection of believers. And he's going to go into that today. He's going to talk a little bit more about that. But as we get into our, our points today, the second point that we're looking at in the chapter is that the facts of the resurrection. And this is verses 12 through 34. I'm going to try to cover those today in 30 minutes. So pray for me, all right? Just start praying right now, okay? Because <laughs> you know that's not going to be easy for me. Which reminds me, let me start my timer. And that's part of the problem too. I don't even start my timer until I'm 10 minutes into the message, you know? Need one of you guys to start it for me and just flash it to me, you know? No, I'm kidding. The facts of the resurrection, verses 12 through 34, Paul starts off saying, if Christ is not risen, pick it up with me in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But, there, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Now, get this, Paul now is going to proceed to give a list of logical things that follow if Christ is not risen from the dead. He says in verse 14, And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead do not rise. Verse 16, for if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. So if you'll pull out your outlines this morning and follow along with me here, I've summarized Six things that Paul is saying are true if Jesus has not risen from the dead. These would be facts if Christ indeed has not risen from the dead. First of all, preaching is pointless. That's verse 14a. Preaching is pointless, guys. If Christ is not risen, then why are we sharing the good news? Why are we going out of our way? To love other people enough to tell them that their soul has eternal value. Why are we loving people enough to uh, pray about getting an opportunity to share and invite them to church? Why would we even do that if, we, if, if, if the gospel message itself is pointless and empty? Secondly, believing would be pointless. <laughs> we're preaching a message that even if people were to believe, it's pointless to believe it. Because there is no resurrection from the dead. You see how the gospel has been built with this integral, integrated part of the gospel being the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's what Paul said there in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. He said, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, many people stop right there. Hey, that's the gospel. Christ died for our sins. But listen, it's much more than that. Not only did He die, He was buried, Paul says... His physical body was put into the tomb, and then three days later, Christ was raised from the dead by the power of God. And that is a part of our gospel message, the good news, because it ties into you and to me, as we'll see in a moment here. But thirdly there, the apostles would be liars if Christ is not risen. 
from the dead. That's verse 15. All the apostles upon which the church is founded, their doctrine, the New Testament scriptures, everything that we believe today is not true. The apostles themselves were liars if Christ is not risen. Not only that, this one breaks my heart. Sins are not forgiven. Man, can you imagine the hopelessness and the desperation of living in a world where our sins were not forgiven? Man, if I had to live with that guilt and that condemnation upon me, I'd go insane. I would go insane. I would be one of these mentally ill people in the world today, letting myself just rot away, knowing that, man, my sins are not forgiven. I am unclean, and there's nobody that can rescue me. Fifthly, Paul says the dead believers would be, are gone forever if Christ is not raised. Our loved ones who have died before us and gone to heaven and, and they're in the presence of the Lord right now. Paul said it himself, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And yet that would not be true if Christ Jesus is not risen. Our loved ones who have died before us in the Lord, we would never see them again. And lastly, and this one, Paul just kind of slapping us in the face. Verse 19, and, and, and I just put it up there, you know, Christians are chumps, by the way. <laughs> by the way, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, you're a chump. You're a fool. You're, you're, you're of all men to be most pitied. Because here you are, you're living for the Lord, you're living for the kingdom, and it's all for nothing. And so you of all human beings should be the most pitied because... You're a chump. You're a chump. But listen, Paul goes on, thankfully, and he says, listen, that's not the case, though. In verse 20, he says, but Christ is risen from the dead. And because that is true, he's going to give us some facts and some explanations. He says, number one, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Look at verse 20 with me. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What in the world does that mean? Christ is the first fruits. How does he become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep? Well, circle that word first fruits and let me explain that to you this morning. That word is important if we're going to understand what Paul means. In fact, this word first fruits is used several times in the New Testament. And it means in Greek thought, when harvest came, there was always a basket of that harvest that was gathered together and it was usually brought there either to the people in the village, the magistrates in the village, or, or, or sometimes to the temples and that sort of thing. But in Greek thought, the first fruits was the first basket, the first harvest that you took from the trees or the fields. And what it spoke of was what was to come. So... If the first fruits, if that first basket of harvest, the grain and the, 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 the crops from the trees, if it was good, well, guess what? It meant that everything that followed was going to be good too. And so the first fruits is the idea that the quality of whatever is the first fruits is also going to be the quality that follows, equal quality. And, and not only that, it's also speaking of importance, it's, he's talking about Christ being first in importance as well. That of all those that have been raised from the dead, Christ Jesus is first in rank. But he's also that, 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 that quality 
of which he has been raised is also going to be passed on to the rest of the harvest of souls. And so that is what that word first fruits means right there. So if Christ is the first fruits, we look to him as an example of what the quality of resurrected life is going to be like for you and for me. He's the pattern, if you will. Now, Paul goes on to give an explanation of what he's talking about in verses 21 through 28. So pick it up with me in verse 21, where we see that death came to all by Adam. Verse 21. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. So Paul is he's just referring to the principle that because Adam, the very first man, fell into sin, and through that sin, man died, or physical death was introduced, paradise was lost. Then he says, well, also by man came the resurrection of the dead. And then look at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So Paul's point here is that, yeah, death came to all by Adam, verse 21, but all are going to be made alive by Christ in verse 22. Now, obviously, he's speaking, when he says all to be made alive there, he's speaking of believers, those that have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ for their salvation. This passage is in a greater context here. Paul is speaking to believers. So we know that that's what what he means there. We're, We're not teaching universalism. Universalism is a doctrine that says that everybody in the world, regardless of what they believe, is ultimately going to be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches, okay? That's a uh, utopian kind of a mindset that uh, is not realistic. The Bible does not teach that. Here, Paul says that we're made alive through Christ. It's through our faith in Christ, those that have believed and trusted in him. So just as in Adam all die, all have sinned, we're born into this world with a sinful nature. We're born in, in, in spiritual deadness, the Bible teaches, but those that are born again in Christ, they're made alive through Christ. And, and, and we will be made alive ultimately in the resurrection. And that's what Paul is going on to say in verses 23 through 28. He talks about the order of the resurrection. He says, but each one in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward, those who are Christ at his coming, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he who has put all things under his feet, I'm sorry, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. So it's talking about God the Father there. God the Father uh, is, is accepted from being put under Christ's feet. Obviously, that's what Paul is talking about there. Verse 28, Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So what is that is saying is that eventually after God the Father has placed all things in subjection to God the Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ in turn is going to turn over the kingdom to the Father and God will be all in all. That is the consummation of 
of the biblical faith, of, of Christianity, and it's some total. God all in all. So let's break this down really quickly. If you'll follow on your outline, Paul gives the order of the resurrection, and he's really giving a very general order here. He's kind of brushing over it. It's a broad thing that he's talking about here. But he says, first, Christ is raised. And now that doesn't mean that Jesus Christ is the first person who's ever been raised from the dead. Remember, going back to first fruits, Christ is first in importance. He is the example or pattern of quality that is to follow. So in that sense, Christ is raised. He's, he's the most important. He's the building block of the resurrection from the dead, the foundation of it all. But then secondly, believers are going to be raised at his appearing or his coming. Now this is where it's interesting to note. In, in Christian circles, we, there, there's a lot of different ideas about this, okay? Um, there's a lot of different positions theologically as to what this could be. Now, uh, many teach that this is the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, but and, and, and that's certainly a viable position. What I think, though, is that Paul is, going, is talking or referring to what is known as the rapture of the church, which is separate from, distinct from, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we'll get into that later on in chapter 15. I'm not going to get too much into it today. We'll look at the different positions of different uh, folks in the church. And I want to just be clear before we even get to that. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's not something that we need to divide over. That is an issue where, hey, everybody has their position. I respect your position. And I'm thankful that you've researched and studied the scriptures to come to that position, or at least I hope you have. Because I know I have searched the scriptures and studied the scriptures for hours in coming to my conclusion, which is a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture position. And those are all theological terms that if you don't know what they are, don't worry about it, okay? (laughs) Because we'll get to it, we'll talk a little bit about it, and I'll I'll explain some of those things later on in chapter 15 as we continue through it. But if Christ is raised from the dead, that's the foundation. That's what Paul's saying. Because Christ is raised from the dead, everyone who has trusted in him and believed in him, you too will be raised from the dead should you die before Christ returns to take up his church. It is a fact. Okay, Paul is stating that in this order. And then he says, after that, after the resurrection of believers who are raised at his appearing, then comes the end, Paul says. And that's really verses 24 through 28 there. He starts off by saying, there comes, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So many people don't realize that Jesus Christ, at the end of the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ, so let me put this in perspective for you. As a premillennialist, we believe that the rapture, a pre-tribulation rapture, will happen then when Christ comes and takes up the church. Then the world will enter into a seven-year tribulation period in which the world is judged for sin. And in the halfway mark of that seven years, at three and a half years, the Antichrist will declare himself to be God. He will set up an abomination in the temple of the Jews in Jerusalem, and he will declare that he's God and that all the world is now to worship him. And that marks the halfway point of the seven-year tribulation. At the 
And the last three and a half years of that seven years is known as the Great Tribulation time. And then at the end of which, Jesus comes back to the earth for the second coming. The Bible tells us in Zechariah that he will touch his foot down on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives will split into a wide valley where the angels will gather all the living that remain in the earth for a, final, for a judgment there, the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Those who are classified as sheep will go into the millennial kingdom as mortal beings, human beings, living in the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ in which the curse of sin is being reversed. Okay, so I know that we're touching into a lot of things. I was joking around with Justin Golden, our assistant pastor here, and I said, you know, really, we could actually go into like a 15-week study on prophecy, segueing off of this chapter if we wanted to. But I am not going to do that to you guys, okay? You'll have to take the eschatology class, the, the end times class in the School of Discipleship and Ministry when that comes up, and it will next spring. But anyways, so that's the end. So, so Christ is going to turn at the end of that thousand-year reign when the curse has been reversed. He's going to take the keys of that kingdom and turn them over to his Father, his Father God. And, and at that point, there's an end of all rule, all authority, all power, Paul says. And then there comes the end of death, the final enemy. So in that thousand-year kingdom, there's still going to be mortals that are living out their lifespan and then dying. Death will still be an enemy. But at the end of that kingdom, Christ is going to overcome and abolish even death. Even death is going to be ended. And that's where we get into the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, where God, it, it talks about God wiping away the tears from every eye and, and comforting those that have experienced the pain and the sorrow that comes from a world that is affected by sin. But all of that there in that verse is the end of all rule, authority, power. It's the end of death. And then lastly there, it's the end of Christ's millennial kingdom. Verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, Paul says, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that God may be all in all. So there you see the consummation of all things in that moment. And then, you know, that's when we will enter into uh, what is really going to be known as heaven, what, what really is technically is heaven at that point, okay? So if you're not a Bible guy and you don't understand what I'm talking about, you got your work cut out for you because there is some really good, interesting things to study here about the end times and what our future holds for us. Now, because we will have been taken up to be with the Lord, and when he comes again at his second coming, the church is coming with Christ at the second coming. And we will already have our immortal bodies, so we will not be mortal beings or, or fle have fleshly bodies that can die and be influenced by sin and corrupted by sin and all of those things. So, so we are going to be coming back to rule and to reign with Christ during that thousand-year kingdom. And it will be our responsibility and our privilege to help govern the earth in Christ's name and in different positions of responsibility. But again, this is where it all comes. This is where I need to tell you guys, right now matters in light of that. Why? Because God is preparing you for eternity. God is forming and fashioning and shaping your character right now. Because as he does so, he's preparing you for where you're going to be in eternity, 
where you're, what you're going to be doing and serving in eternity. You know, it's so funny. My, you know, people get this idea that, you know, heaven is just this boring place where we sit around on clouds and play harps and, you know, eat grapes, you know, and that sort of a thing, you know. I mean, that's what my nine-year-old son thinks heaven is going to be. And he, he was, but even he was disappointed by that. He, he said to me one night, he was like, Dad, I don't even want to go to heaven. You know, and as a dad, I'm like, what? You know, what do you mean? No, don't say that, you know. And I'm like, that's, no, don't, don't ever say that, you know. And, and, but something in me just said, well, just ask him some questions and figure out where, the, where, where this is coming from. So I asked him, I said, well, well, why do you not want to go to heaven, buddy? And he said to me, well, it just sounds boring to me. He said, it just sounds like we're just going to be sitting around worshiping the whole time. And he's like, you know, somebody's going to be playing the guitar. We're going to have to be in this chair, you know, worshiping. And I'm like, buddy, I'm so glad that you said that because that is not what heaven is going to be like, man. That is not what eternity is going to be like. And I started to share with them all these different things about, you know, how I believe that, you know, God is going to have a job for us. He's going to have a role and a responsibility. And not only that, we're going to get to experience all these amazing things of creation that we've never got to experience before. We're going to get to travel and see everything we never got to see. And all of this is going to be part of our worship to our amazing Father in heaven. And just all the things that, you know, the things that we're going to be tasting and seeing and doing. And man, he started to get his eyes all wide, you know, like, oh, okay, well that, well that sounds fun then. I guess I do want to go to heaven, you know. But listen, God's forming in us now. He's fashioning eternity in your hearts. He's preparing you for it. And so in light of that, Paul gives us some application of the arguments that he's just made in verse 29. Pick it up with me. The application here, Paul says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? That's a weird verse. Read it again. Paul's saying, What will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? All right. Let's keep going. Verse 30. Why do we stand in jeopardy? I'll I'll come back to it. Why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? 31. I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If in the matter of all men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. All right. First off, I want you to notice the progression of pronouns in those four verses there. In verse 29, Paul specifically says, they who are baptized for the dead. And he says, why, are, why then are they? Okay. In verse 30, he says, why do we? He changes from they to we. And then in verse 31, he says, I. And then in verse 32, he says, uh, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So let me deal with the difficulty there in verse 29 first. At first glance, uh, it, it seems that there were those in Corinth, again, a, a very interesting church with a lot of problems. This is, should not be too surprising to us. But one of the problems that they had is they apparently were vicariously baptizing people who had died that were believers. 
People that were believers in Christ, but they had died before they had a chance to be baptized. And these Corinthians were practicing what is known as vicarious baptism for these dead believers, okay? Thinking for some reason that that was necessary. Now, let me clarify to you that there is nowhere else in the entire New Testament that we are instructed or that it even mentions baptizing the dead, okay? And so for somebody to come along and to build an entire church doctrine about baptizing dead people vicarious or baptizing vicariously for the dead would be a tremendous error to commit, okay? That would be to take this passage, to rip it out of its context and to establish a church doctrine on something that is mentioned once in the entire New Testament, and in, in, in this verse, when it is mentioned, notice that Paul very, uh, uh, very interestingly enough distances himself from them. He says they. He says they. He says specifically they. Now he goes on, he uses other pronouns, I, us, and we. But when he's talking about these that are baptizing for the dead, he says they. And that's important. So guys, don't be thinking that because Paul mentioned that there was a few people in Corinth that for some reason were vicariously baptizing for dead people in Christ, that we should go out and do the same. That would be a, a serious grave error. But listen, that's part of the problem. That's part of the problem is there, there were these people that were doing this. They had taken, and, and they had, we don't know where they got this practice from, we don't know where they got this idea from, but they were off on their own doing something that there's, there's no precedent set for that in any of the scriptures. And so that's important for us to realize is that, that, that this can be part of the problem here. But Paul's point, he's just a- acknowledging that they were doing that. He's not agreeing with it. He's not saying it was okay. He distances himself from it. But Paul's point here is he's saying that if there is no resurrection, then life is absurd. Life is absurd. For the Corinthians that were practicing this vicarious baptism, it would be absurdity. Why would you do it if there's no resurrection from the dead, he says. But secondly, it would also be absurd for Paul to do the things that he does. He says, why do I stand in jeopardy every hour? He says, I faced wild beasts in Ephesus. What advantage is that to me if the dead don't rise in Christ? If, if when I die, there's just nothing left. And that's the end of it all. There's no point. Life would be absurd for even Paul the Apostle. And then also for all believers, it would be absurd. He says, if the dead do not rise, hey, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We might as well just party. We might as well just go out with one big party because it really doesn't matter. Life is absurd. But that's not the case. And so Paul continues to give further application of verse 33. He says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. What does this mean? It means don't be fooled by false teachers, guys. That's a direct warning to the church in Corinth for what they were experiencing. Guys, I don't need to tell you today that the church is swirling with false teaching. There is so much false teaching happening in the church today. And you want to know how you can discern what is false and what is true? You read your Bibles, folks. You be people of the Word. You be men and women that wake up in the morning and jump into the Word. Or if you're a night person, you jump into the Word before you hit the sack at night. And you read. And you familiarize yourself with the truths of Scripture. And you have a relationship with Jesus. And then you know what's going to happen when those false teachings come. You're going to go, huh, that doesn't sound quite right. 
That doesn't seem quite correct to me. Baptizing for the dead, that's an interesting church doctrine. Why would you have a church doctrine like that if it's only mentioned one time in the New Testament and Paul even distances himself from it? Why would you do that? And you'll, you'll begin to discern things about false teachers and false religions. So guys, don't be fooled by false teachers. That's the application here for you and for me. Guys, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. Uh, I don't, you know, normally name names. Sometimes I do, but only when I think it's important. But there'll be times when I do that. And if I do, guys, it's because I think that you need to be warned. That's my job as your pastor. My job as your pastor is to warn the church and protect you from wolves. Even wolves that are dressed in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep. They talk like sheep. They even act like sheep. 95% of what they do, but 5% of what they're teaching and introducing can be false. And that's where we have to be careful. You know, when a bank wants to teach somebody how to spot counterfeit bills, they give them a whole stack of regular bills, and they tell them to count them. And in that one stack, they'll slip one counterfeit bill. And as they're counting those real bills, as they come through and they get familiar with the feeling and and the texture and how they look, when they finally do get to that counterfeit bill, boom, they just know something's not right. Doesn't feel right, doesn't smell right, doesn't look right. Must be false. Hey, same thing with Christianity, guys. If you're in the Word of God, you're reading, you're studying, you're in this book day and night, meditating on God's Word, hey, when the false teaching comes, you're going to smell it, you're going to see it, and you're going to know it for what it is. So I encourage you to do that. I, I can't go into more of that right now because of our time, but let's move on now to the final application that Paul gives there He says, don't be fooled by false teachers, verse 33, but then the last one is to wake up and live in light of the resurrection reality. Verse 34, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Guys, don't check out on me. Don't check out on me. This is the most important part. We have to rightly apply God's words to our lives. We need to wake up and live in righteousness and do not sin. Paul says these are imperatives. Verse 33 and verse 34, these are commands from Paul the Apostle. He says, don't be fooled by the false teachers. Bad company will corrupt good character. It will corrupt you guys, the false teachers. They will corrupt you if you continue to hang out with them. If you continue to give yourself to things that are are not not having their source in the pure word of God. If you're giving yourself to sources that are contaminated by worldly thought and worldly philosophy, you will be corrupted by them. And then he says in verse 34, so wake up and live in light of the resurrection reality. Don't sin. Don't be living a lifestyle of sin, habitual sin. Listen, no true Christian is going to just be okay with sin. Why? Because God is not okay with sin. God is not okay with brushing our sin under the carpet and just saying, okay, we won't ever uh, you know, have that conversation. We won't ever deal with that. That's not our God. This week, we had a great conversation in my family devotions as we were sitting around the kitchen table. And we started, to, I, I asked my kids, I said, guys, kids, why can't God just say to our sin, you know what, I... 
you know, Jesus died for all the sin of the whole world. We're just going to take everybody's sin. We're going to sweep it under the carpet, and we're not going to deal with it. There's not going to be any such thing as hell. Why can't God do that? And, and, and one of my kids looked at me, and, he's, and, and they said, yeah, Dad, why can't, why can't God just do that? Why, why can't he just do that? He's, he's God. He could do all things. Why can't he just do that? And I said, well, well hold on a second. So what you're saying to me is that if I came to you or if, or if somebody came to you and they beat you up and took your money that you have saved up, that you've done all these chores for, and they took your money and they walked all over you and then they went their way, that they should just be able to do that and get away with it? Like that would be okay with you? Well, no, that wouldn't be okay with me. Well, what do you think should happen to them? Well, the police should get on them and they should lock them up and put them in jail. And I said, yeah, exactly. That's the same thing with God. Humanity has committed crimes against God. We've spit in his face. We've despised the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. We've committed rebellious acts against the God who loves us and wants to save us. Do you think he can just look the other way and said, well, that never happened. There's no payment for that crime. That rapists and murderers should just all get off the hook for free and there should be no justice? If God is truly good and he is truly God, then he cannot allow that to happen. And because he is truly good and loving and holy and just, he must punish sin wherever it may be found. And so church, we need to wake up and live in light of the resurrection reality. We should not be okay with sin in our lives. We should not be okay with habitual sin. If you are struggling with something in your life, you need to find a way to beat it. Because if Jesus Christ is your Lord, nothing else can have the power to overcome you. He sets you free from everything else. You shouldn't have a habitual sin that dominates your life. You can be free. You can be free through Jesus Christ. And so I encourage you today to realize that we have one life to live. And it will soon be past. And only what you have done for Christ will last. What's your passion? What's deciding your time? What is your purpose in life? Have you discovered that? Hey, for some of you young people, I realize it can be very difficult to understand what is my purpose? What is my passion supposed to be? Hey, let me encourage you. Start out in a big general swath. Find what you're generally interested in and, and start down that path. And you know what? As you learn all you can learn, generally speaking... God is going to show you the things that you're passionate about and he's going to slowly narrow it down until you find your purpose and why he's given you life, why he's put you here. But you got to start somewhere. And if you don't make a plan now, if you don't make a plan now, you, you run the risk of letting other people and peer pressure and, and other, you know, your boss and all these other people, they're going to formulate what you do with your life. But listen, we need to live in light of the eternity. Light of, in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that should cause you and me to go, wow, I need to get serious about my life. I've got one life to live, and it will soon be passed. Only what I've done for Christ will last. Moms and dads, what do you want to be remembered by from your kids? I just did a funeral yesterday. I do funerals a lot as a pastor. I get exposed to that, so I think about these things. But have you thought about it? Have you thought about what you want your kids and your family members to say about you? Have you thought about that? 
Are you living for that day? Knowing that one day you're going to be resurrected and you're going to carry into eternity the character that's been formed and shaped in you now. Are you allowing God to do that work in you? Or are you just letting it be formed and, and, and letting, letting your life be dictated by others? Hey, God has a plan. He has a purpose. He wants to give you a passion. You've got to spend time with him. You've got to, you've got to seek him for that. And as you do, he will give it to you. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. And we're going to finish our service just singing uh, some praise and worship to the Lord. But let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask and pray this morning for these precious people, Lord, that you've brought here to service this morning. God, I know it's not by chance. I know that each one of them is here because you've brought them. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to them and challenge them. Challenge all of us, Lord, to ask ourselves questions like, you know, what am I living for and how do I want to be remembered? And, and, and Lord, what is my passion? What, what's the passion that you've given me to do? And, and am I doing that? Am I pouring into my kids? Am I pouring into my, 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 my job? If that's something that, that I believe is from you, Lord. But Father, I just pray that for every single person here, you'd help us to discover what that purpose is for us individually. And Father, that we would live in light of the resurrection, that one day we will be raised and given a new body, a heavenly body, and we will go into eternity, Lord, with you, Lord, with responsibilities and, 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 and positions, Lord, and, and Father, we need to be getting ready for that day. We need to be living in light of that today. So help us to do that, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you wouldn't mind standing to your feet as we worship the Lord, as we close out our service, if anybody needs prayer for anything, we're available to pray with you. And listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you do not know that if today you were to die and to breathe your last and stand before the God that made you, if you do not know without a shadow of a doubt that you're right with Him, that you have peace with Him, and you would step into eternity in heaven, then I beg you to step out of your seat this morning and to come and to find me or to come and to find one of these other church elders and leaders that are standing in the back and in the front and to talk to us that we might pray with you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior so that you too may be given that gift of the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Let's worship the Lord.